Welcome to Hot Seating, the drama education podcast with myself, Avian Finnegan. In this podcast, we interview well-known drama practitioners and community artists. We reflect on their drama experiences through the lens of the drama strategies. Like you define the space within your classroom, we are defining the space for conversations about drama in education, not just in Ireland, but all over the world. This is a podcast brought to you by the Association of Drama in Education in Ireland, also known as the ADEI. This week I am hot-seating Peter Lutzker. Peter was born in New York City and studied music and literature in the United States and Germany. After first working as an orchestra musician, he then studied Steiner, Waldorf pedagogy and became a high school teacher for music and English in Waldorf schools in Germany. He has been active as a teacher educator in different European countries, including Germany, Hungary, Russia and England. Since 2010, he's been a professor at the Freihochschule Stuttgart, Waldorf Teachers College. In 2019, he was appointed an honorary professor at the Tsinghua University in Taiwan. He has written numerous articles and books in English and in German, Most recently, the second edition of his book, The Art of Foreign Language Teaching, Improvisation and Drama in Teacher Development and Language Learning was published. So pour yourself a cup of tea, sit back, relax and enjoy. So I'm joined today by Peter Lutzker. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Good, good. It's nice to see you. Very good. So you're in Krakow at the moment. Right. Yeah, it's hard to keep track. It's it's great when I uh, interview people and they're in a different part of the world, you know, um, I love it. So, so Peter, can you tell me what is your still image? Your first memory of drama? First memory of drama. Um, I, my grandmother took me to Othello uh, when I was way too young to understand it. We went to Stratford in Connecticut, they, you know, sort of rebuilt uh, Globe Theatre there. And uh, I didn't understand the play. Um, but I was very excited to be there with her. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because Othello became much later in my life, one of my favorite plays that I've taught many, many times. Uh, and it was actually my first encounter with Shakespeare as well. I mean, I, I wish I could say more about it, but it was, uh, it was just, um, you know, I think I was nine years old. Othello's not necessarily a play for nine-year-olds. And did you come from a family who were interested in drama then, if your mom brought you to that? Uh, it was my grandmother, actually. Oh, your um, grandmother. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't say my family was particularly interested in drama. That I mean, I, I actually came to drama myself more through music. I, I was I started to be a musician, um, and uh, you know, in my teenage years, spent a lot of time playing my French horn and going to concerts, and um, and so you know, sort of through music, through concerts, through opera, that's where I was actually my way into drama. Interesting. You're you're not the first person who said that, which is very uh, interesting for me. I, I just because I I didn't come to it that way, <laughs> so I'm like, what? Um, and so you you mentioned you grew up in New York, right? Wow. So so that must have been quite culture rich in terms of the music there and all yeah. the, the entertainment scene in general. Um, you know, that was fantastic. I mean, I, I, as a teenager, I worked as an usher in Lincoln Center, you know, in the concert hall. Oh, and wow. so I, I got to see, you know, 
eight or nine concerts a week, you know, from the age 16 to 18, 19. Um, and that was, you know, that was gave me actually a basis for, for so much in life, including drama. You know, I've seen that many great concerts and experienced that. So it really, drama became, after music, my, my great interest. But it, it started actually with music. I actually worked as an usher for many years as well, and it's the best job. It's a great um, job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is. Any job that affords you to see shows all the time is the best Absolutely. job. I, I could never believe I was getting paid for it. I, I, you know, I would have paid to see the concerts. They were paying me to do it. So. You know, that's brilliant. So uh, in that sense, uh, so then after New York, so you're, I'm just trying to cross the, the T's and dot the I's here. After New York, where did you go? Are you Did you study in New York then? or I studied actually in, in Chicago at Northwestern University. And then I went to Freiburg, Breisgau in Germany to continue my studies of the French horn there. Uh, and I ended up staying in Germany. That was, you know, about more than 40 years ago. And uh, I studied there and then worked as a musician there and then became a Steiner Waldorf teacher. And my whole life has actually been spent in, in Germany from that point on. Wow. And then in terms of going to Germany, what drew you there in the first place? Was it the study that that specific place? I always wanted to, to work in Europe. That had always been my dream to sort of at some point play in a, in a European orchestra. And a friend of mine called me in Chicago one day and said uh, they desperately needed horn players in Freiburg and Breisgau. I said, well, I don't know where that is, but I'll go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, I went and um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Uh, and uh, studying there and I you know, gradually learned German. <laughs> and uh, Oh, um, gradually. And it's, uh, how did you find it in terms of like going to a country without a language and then having to survive? Well, you know, music is sort of a language of its own. And so, you know, and basically, and, and there were you know, other uh, people who spoke English there. Um, and the one thing that was a bit challenging, is, you know, conductors would call out, we'll start at number 22. And I didn't, you know, but it's fine, it's fine, you know, but what number is that? You know, you have to find it very quickly. You know, so oh. you, you get, it, the, the first <laughs> few months were challenging. Um, but then, then you get used to that. And, and I, I felt very, very well. And Freiburg and Breisgau is a beautiful city. So it was quite a change from New York to Chicago to Freiburg and Breisgau. Yeah, and so. was it your own experience of language learning that drew you towards that area? Yeah, it, it's interesting because, I mean, learning German was really a transformative experience for me. I mean, you know, it was, it was, I never actually studied it. I just, you know, picked it up living there. And then the more I got into it, the more I... I was able to read, and I remember the first time I could read a book, and I read Stefan Zweig's Shock Novella, you know, um, which is, is, is a wonderful, short, and very exciting book. And then I realized, wow, this is, this is possible. I can read German literature from that point. Um, you know, and then I had the experience of reading Goethe, and it was just amazing. It really transformed my experiences. So it shaped my teaching as an English teacher, I think, a great deal that I had that, ex that kind of experience learning German. Yeah, so it was like an immersive experience rather than like the, the direct formal classes. Yeah, no, there was no direct formal classes and, and, and it, you know, it took, took a while and, um, you know, it's still not 100% perfect. Um, but uh, it was certainly very important. I had learned Spanish in school and, and, and liked Spanish, enjoyed Spanish. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, these, these sort of encounters with literature that I had with German ended up being very, very important for me later as a teacher. So you mentioned Waldorf and Steiner there. So tell me about that. That's what really drew me to you 
Um, I'm Freble trained. So all of those kind of areas really, really uh, interest me. Um, mm. So what brought you down that path? Yeah. Um, at, at some point when I was playing my French horn and playing in orchestras and I wasn't really satisfied. Um, and my sister-in-law was doing a training to be a Wallach teacher and she was talking about Wallach education. And it, it sounded very interesting to me. And so I started to read and I didn't understand much of what I read, um, but it, it kept, held my interest. Um, and so at some point I thought, well, I, I think I'd like to try this out. Um, because you know, I had, had myself. I had been found high school incredibly boring and had actually dropped out. Um, and uh, and you know, I couldn't ever imagine you know being a teacher. You know, having <laughs> done schools. You know, I went to a school with five thousand kids in, in New York. Wow. Um, and uh, and then when I uh, read about this, I thought, well, this this sounds so different, so unusual. And the role of the arts, of course, is very prominent in Santa Barbara schools, and that attracted me. And then. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make this career shift. I was 27, 28, um, and uh, then did a training to be a Wallet teacher, intensive one-year training, and then from that point on, uh, that's what I've been doing. I taught wow. for 20, 25 years in Wallet schools, and also doing teacher education at the same time. And then for the last 12 years, I've been just doing teacher education. And what made the shift from teaching? in a school to teacher education? I've been doing a lot of that on the side. I was combining teaching in school, um, usually sort of a three quarters position, I was also giving courses on weekends and workshops in, in different countries, and mostly, but not only in Steiner and Waller settings. Um, and, and I really enjoyed both. And I enjoyed being able to do both as well, You know, being able to sort of go from a classroom and then teach teachers and had just done that in class. I thought it was very, very convenient to, to have that, that dual role there but mm -hmm. the amount of time I was being asked to do, do in teacher education uh, at some point became so much I really had to make a decision and I at one point I did my doctorate too because I was interested in pursuing on an academic level some of the things I had been experiencing for so long in teaching including drama you know my doctorate was basically about drama and education drama and foreign language teaching and um, it was one of the main subjects there and that came just because having experienced that for so many years, I had the feeling that I'd like to actually deepen this and, and see what this looks like, you know, to try and explore it in an academic way. Mm. And from that point on, then teacher education became a very logical next step. Yeah. And tell me about the place of drama in Waldorf and Steiner and how, how it influences your practice. <laughs> that's, that's a big, it's a big theme. I mean, drama plays <laughs> a, a big role in a lot of subjects in Wallace, not only in teaching English as a foreign language or teaching any foreign language. I mean, you know, they have their kids in their own language do little plays, you know, continually in lower grades and middle grades. And they have a, a big class play in eighth grade usually, and then a big class play in 12th grade. So drama is something our Wallace students are, are very familiar with. Um, in foreign language teaching, it plays also a special role because especially in the first three years, you know, in foreign language it's taught in English or in French or in Russian or in Chinese or whatever language it's taught in, um, there's no books used, it's all oral. And so it's all in play, it's all in role play in, in little uh, scenes that are acted out. And, and that sort of goes through the, all the grades. And when I was in a school that very fortunately has a tradition of every 10th grade performed a play in a foreign language, a full length play. I was in Dissidor. Um, 
And so yeah. every year, either myself or my colleague got to work intensively for months on, you know, performing a full length play for the whole school and invited audiences. And, um, and that became a major aspect of, of language learning. The kids, you know, we had very high level of language learning in that school. And it certainly had a lot to do with the fact that, you know, for months, every 10th grader had a chance to really immerse themselves in, in rehearsals and in, in performances in working towards, uh, you know, full length a performance of a full length play um, for a large audience. You know, we attracted big audiences for that. Wow, that's that's actually a very um, it's a, it's a very challenging thing to take on, uh, you know. Um, and in terms, so so that was a performance, and in terms of the actual pedagogy within that, so how how do you use drama within foreign language like what what's your I suppose what's your go-to yeah I mean you know there's so many ways of doing it and, and it's not you know and there are arguments for each way you know the arguments for using process drama arguments for for using it in small scale settings um I, I think the most transformative experiences are, are really when you when you immerse yourself into into a play like that into that over months and and yeah. I think it's important that the play itself is worth those efforts, you know, I the plays that, that, you know, I would choose with the students, we made the choice together. Um, where the choices that I gave them though were always plays where I thought that this would be worthwhile doing, you know, working on this for months, and, you know, and they, that there's a whole range of plays like that, of course, always has enough roles, which makes it challenging. Um, but uh, I, I, that's, I think, you know, sort of the gold standard, uh, if you can really, do that and working towards a performance. You know, the thing about working in process drama or improvisational drama within a classroom setting, it can be a lot of fun and very helpful, um, but you're not working towards something. You're not working towards performing for an audience. And when, you know, kids know that, you know, a few months from now or then a few weeks from now, or a few days from now, there's gonna be hundreds of people sitting there hoping for, you know, an exciting evening. Uh, the motivation level is very high and, uh, yeah. and the experience is very intense. And so, I think that, that that has always been what I've suggested also teachers, if they have the possibility of doing that, uh, to, to grab it, because it, mm. it becomes really a transformative experience for everybody involved, including the teacher. Yeah, so true. And it really, I think it really brings the school community together as well, doesn't it? Like yeah. it just yeah. unites everybody. I've been dying to ask you about this Um it's it's very you're like what's she going to ask me um it's the your work with clowning and teacher education fascinates me tell me a little bit more about that yeah no that 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 became a very important experience and, and for me and i think in the meantime it's become a very important experience for lots of people you know we uh, about 25 years ago we founded the english week which is the largest steiner waller school training for uh, English as foreign language teachers in the world. And people come from really all over the world to do that week. And the center of those weeks are artistic courses. We work with professional uh, actors, directors, storytellers, and theater clowns. Uh, and three hours of that day is always spent working with those professionals. The rest of the courses are methodology courses and lectures and the more standard things you have in a week like that. And uh, and the, I was familiar with many of the teachers who taught those courses and I had done you know, some drama work and some uh, work in storytelling, but I'd never done theater clowning. And that, so my first experience was as a participant, I, mean, I had organized the conference and spoke at the conference, but I wanted to take the courses as well. So I took a theater clowning course and realized that this is an absolutely amazing thing that's happening here. You know, we, if at the 
beginning of the week, you knew what you had to do at the end of the week. I think nobody would ever take the course, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good description. Yeah, definitely you know, not. <laughs> I mean, you know, the end of that week, you know, through hours of working each day, very carefully built up, you know, very, you know, beautiful exercises, each a bit more challenging than the next, but everything, you know, sort of in that zone of proximal development that you could still do it, even though, you know, each time it was, it was challenging and scary, but by the end of the week, you had gotten to the point, you know, you put on your nose, your red nose, you put on your funny little costume and hat or, you know, an oversized jacket or something. <laughs> And then you walked out in front of a conference, you know, with 130, 140 English teachers sitting there, and you had absolutely no idea what you were going to do. And you realized that that's what you needed to, that was the only way to go out there. You know, you'd learn to drop all your plans, all your tensions, what you wanted to do, what would be funny, what wouldn't be funny. You just went on stage and looked at the audience and trusted stuff would happen. And somebody else teachers. For teachers, it's difficult to let go of the plan, isn't it? That, that's the thing. You know, that's what teachers are constantly telling us. You know, that's what I, I wrote about in my book too. That that um, you know, teachers can't believe that they have, are being asked to do that. You know, and at the beginning of the week, you know, I mean, it, it builds up to that slowly. But at the end of the week, you realize the only way to to make beautiful things happen is to go out there and have no idea what you're going to do. When somebody else comes on that stage and joins you who also has no idea what they're gonna do. And both of you are looking at each other and neither of you have any idea what you're gonna do. Stuff happens. And what happens is, is beautiful, you know, and, and it's, it's funny and, you know, you learn to look at your audience and you're getting, you know, a lot of things happening between, you know, and, the, and you're looking at the audience and looking at you and things develop, you know, it's about intuition, it's about flow and it's about not planning. Yeah, and that's something I try and teach my students. I teach um, teachers as well. And I say some of the, the greatest uh, skill a teacher can have is flexibility. But I mean, I need to take my own advice too, because, you know, it's, <laughs> we do plan. <laughs> I mean, I tell teachers, of course, you know, you got to plan for your lessons too, but. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> but it's those unmet hurdles that we're faced with all the time as teachers, you know, our days. That's what I love about teaching. It's our days are so unpredictable. Somebody once reckoned that, you know, in the course of a lesson, there's, there's almost a thousand decisions that one makes, you know, and, you know, most of those can't be planned. You know, you, you, have, you have your plan and things, you know, sometimes go according to plan for a while, but I don't think I've ever had a lesson that went exactly as planned. And, you know, um, and that would almost be suspicious if it did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. Me too. <laughs> um, I, you use the word art a lot when you're talking about teaching. Um, and I, I, I like that. I think I had a conversation with um, Carmela Sullivan last week and she was talking about the importance of developing one's own art in order to be able to teach. Uh, and I think that's something that's kind of stuck with me since she said it. Um, is that kind of where, where you kind of come from as well, that you, you need to hone in these skills? Yeah, no, I, th I, I really, you know, truly and deeply believe that teaching is an art, you know, just as, you know, playing music is an art and, and, and uh, being an actor is, is an artistic process and an art. Uh, um, and, and that requires, you know, from teaching, as opposed to, you know, the actor on stage is performing for an audience who's come to see that play that night. And of course, they're doing their best, but we're, you know, in, I hesitate almost to use the word performing because we're not performing. We're being ourselves, but trying to be artists and working with kids, you know, over years, you know, and it, it, it's not, it's not a one-time show, you know, and it's not, it's not a show at all in that sense. And yet the artistry required is no less, I think, than the artistry required of the actor and musician. Um, yeah. 
huge amount of artistry. That's the thing. Even in terms of like questioning and the the, the decision making, they're all art forms as well, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm actually working an article right now uh, called The Art of the Question. That's very good. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, when when I'm watching my students teach their lessons, you know, I I realize that, you know, how deeply the questions they were asked as pupils themselves sit in them. You know, they have have this... You know, it's unconscious, but they're asking the same questions that they were asked as pupils, and they're incredibly boring. You know, oh, that's interesting. only teachers could ask some of the questions that they would ask. <laughs> no, no human being other than a teacher would ask a question that way. And to try and get, to, you know, what's an artistic question? What's a question that really is a real question? It's not a teacher's mm. question. That's an art that needs to be studied. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm looking forward to reading that article whenever it comes out. So do let me know. So, uh, Peter, I'm very much aware that I've only asked you one question. <laughs> <laughs> this is very interesting. Um, so I'm going to ask you now, uh, teacher in role, a standout drama moment for you as a practitioner. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's hard to make a choice here. I know. <laughs> the. Uh, you know, one, one moment that, that, that was very moving to me was actually almost not a dramatic moment in the sense, a traditional sense of drama. <clears throat> you know, in, in the play that I, you know, in my uh, practice research, my action research study that I wrote about in my book, um, where we did the Diary of Anne Frank, um, the students, there were some students who didn't have big roles in the play, but they were in charge of the, building the sets. The, and the Diary of Anne Frank, is, is a gigantic set. You're building a, you know, a, a two-story house. And they couldn't do this in the auditorium because the auditorium was needed up to a week before the performance. And so they had done the plans, they made a model. And I told them the whole time, I said, this is, you know, this is up to you guys. I'm not gonna get involved in this. I'm very busy directing the play. You know, whatever happens with this house, you gotta do it. And, you know, and I trusted, you know, there were students who, seemed to me very talented in that respect. And I knew they were working hard. They made their model. They showed it to me. I said, it looks great. Can't wait to see it on stage. But nobody had seen it because it didn't exist. And then the week, we had one week to rehearse on stage. And they spent the night building up, the night before we were allowed to go in the auditorium, building up this, this two-story house. And it was, it was a huge house they built. And nobody had seen it, you know, because it didn't exist. And so we all got to the rehearsal that morning at nine o'clock. And I opened the door. And there we see these, these four guys, you know, uh, standing in front of their house. Uh, and it had gone up that night and it was there, you know, a whole set. Uh, and, you know, everybody couldn't believe it. You know, we've been rehearsing on a, on a bare stage, uh, imagining the house. And suddenly the house is there, you know, in the different... It's magic. You know, it was total magic. And you can imagine with rehearsals, you know, how they took off in that last week. And, you know, in the end, it was always very moving to me. You know, at the end of the performance, you know, the, the actors come out, and of course, the actors, you know, and the actresses did wonderful jobs. But then these four pe- guys come out, nobody's quite sure who are these four guys, you know, because they hadn't really seen some of them on stage, even though they had very small roles. Uh, and then they held up the model of their house. And then people realized it was them who had built it. And it was just, oh. you know, overwhelming applause. And the kids, of course, were totally, you know, excited by the response they got. And people really- Oh, I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, almost a non-dramatic moment. in a drama. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you chose that because nobody's ever chosen a moment yeah. like that before. And it's very, very interesting. And it kind of, it's, it's kind of reminding me as well, 
of all of those elements of theatre that are just so important in order for the drama to take place. And there you go, you're you're defining your space. Um, and tell me about the, the guys who built it. Were, were they they were you know were they they were obviously older. No, no, they were all, they, they, they were, they were kids. They were 10th grade. No way. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, Wallet classes are, are always very mixed. You know, we have total mixed abilities. You know, the German school system is unfortunate. The state school system is very selective. You know, you have different track yeah. schools. Uh, Wallet schools are the exception. You know, you have, you know, students who go on to, you know, become university professors and students who are carpenters, you know, grow up to be carpenters. And, and these kids sit next to each other and, and work together. And that's, that's the principle of the school, that, that it be like oh, that. Yeah. And they're together to 12th grade. So there are kids whose, you know, whose specialty is not, you know, standing on the stage and speaking English for hours, uh, but who are very talented in other respects and interested yeah. in other things. And so, you know, it's this inclusive nature. If it's in the 10th grade play, everybody has a part. Everybody has something to do. And that was, mm -hmm. that became their task, you know. I mean, some of them also I, had I, I love that. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's a beautiful experience. And to me, yeah. it's very much part of Steiner Wall of Education that, that everybody's involved. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I like that um, mantra because, you know, I'm always saying in a bit of an aside, you know, being involved in community theatre, I'm quite involved in community theatre. I love the way that there's a something for everyone and that like that there's people who are involved in the set who are equally as passionate as the actors in the stage and also that the age can range you know within theatre you know I some of my greatest friends are in their 80s because we've, we've met through theatre you know um, and I think that's a really good example of that and how children's abilities are are varied and we can we can use them in in, in, the, in the drama in in many different ways which is brilliant um so, Peter, can you tell me uh, your role on the wall, an influential person who has shaped your practice? Yeah, I would say, you know, when I was studying music at Northwestern, I had also was able to take courses in other subjects as well. And interesting enough, the courses I took in the other subjects became from my life and my work much more important than my music courses, you know, since when I switched mm -hmm. careers. And I had uh, a course in the interpreta oral interpretation of literature. Uh, with uh, Frank Galati, who later became very famous, and uh, he was a famous actor when I took a course with him, but he was also became a famous Broadway director and opera director. And in that course, we learned how to interpret literature through performance, you know, prose literature, uh, or, you know, poetry and, and things that are not normal. It wasn't, it wasn't studies on how to perform play, it was studies how to perform literature. And I took a few of those courses and they, they really changed my life. You know, I hadn't realized you could even do this. And, uh, and when I started teaching English uh, as a foreign language, I realized th this is the way to do it. This is the, you know, to take literature, get it off the page, put it into performance. And of course, drama is, is you know, the, the most obvious way to do that. But I work a lot with performing poetry where in, in small groups. You know, kids work on a, on a poem uh, together, learn it by heart, and then, uh, and after, you know, four or five chance to rehearse it, I mean, four or five uh, school lessons, uh, they perform it. And, uh, and this kind of work is, is transformative. It's very exciting. It's beautiful to watch, and I think very important to experience. So this idea of the oral performance of literature, which you know, I, I didn't get it in my Waldorf studies. I got that in my university studies, just as an elective in college, you know, when I was not going to music courses. Uh, and it ended up being the basis for my work. Wow. Isn't that very interesting? That can happen, though. Uh, I, I like that about teachings, that you take these little 
interests from your life and it, it can really transform what you're doing. Yeah, you have no idea that that's what's going to happen. You know, at the, the moment I thought, well, this is a great, interesting, you know, change from playing music, but I'm going to be a musician. And then, you know, it was 10 years later, I wasn't a musician, but I was learning and, and building on what I had learned in those, those courses. And, and do you still play music? No, no. I, at the point at which I had children, was working at Waldorf School and still trying to play music, I realized one of those things had to go. <laughs> I'm glad the music went. I'm not the only thing. <laughs> I think everybody is. <laughs> so, Peter, your conscience, Ali, and this is one of my favorite questions. Um, a time where it all went wrong, or it could indeed be a funny moment um, that, that's happened across your career. Yeah, I didn't experience it as funny at the moment. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, I, when the, one of the performances that we did in, in this is after the 10th grade play, and we, had, we, had, we had to choose the play as a class together. And, uh, and the problem was all the girls wanted to do My Fair Lady and all the boys wanted to do Man of La Mancha. And it was a musical. But you can't possibly do a play where all the girls don't want to do it or all the boys don't want to do it. So it became clear yeah. we, need, we needed another play. And so I thought, oh, I'll take, you know, a literary text like I had done in that course for interpretation of literature and we'll perform a literary text. And so I had, you know, used the script for James Joy's short story, The Dead, you know, that wonderful story at the end. Yeah. Uh, and... It, you know, I did it as a chamber theater. So, I mean, you know, it, it was not where the narrator becomes a key role, you know, narrator speaks and, and third person narrator becomes a role on stage. And it's a wonderful text. And I said to the kids, well, this is, this is gonna be our compromise. You're gonna, we're not gonna do the My Fair Lady or Man of Mancha. We're gonna do uh, this dead. It'll be a world premiere or a premiere in Germany, at least of this on stage. And I thought, well, that's great, premiere. You know? <laughs> I said, you know, James Joyce, you know, the great, writer of the 20th century, you know, and they're like, oh, that sounds good, you know. And we started to rehearse it and I realized pretty soon into it, this is, it, it was a good class. They could act the roles, but this was actually emotionally very challenging for them. You know, there's, there's parts in there that were really, you know, they were stretching them. And so it, it wasn't working as I had hoped, although, you know, it, it was getting better and better. And, and, you know, the older they were getting, each month, you know, they're getting a bit more mature and understanding a bit more of what's going on here. <laughs> But the problem was actually me as the director, because to direct this this uh, play, you know, which is not a play, you have no, there's no directions. There's nothing telling you when, you know, when to do what, you know, where, what happens on stage, the, all the blocking of the choreography, everything. You have to make that up yourself. And I began to realize, you know, this is is not really working very well, and I don't know how to solve it. You know, oh. I, I had no experience directing other anything other than plays, you know, and, you know, where it said, you know, this, this happens then and this happens then. And, yeah. uh, you know, how do you get from here to, you know, how do you get from the party inside the house to outside, you know, where the coach is riding through the streets of Dublin? How do you get the streets of Dublin? You know, how do you get the coach? You know, I mean, and I realized I don't know how to solve these problems. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I kept telling the kids, you know, we we're just working the lines and the roles and they were getting more and more into the lines. Well, they said, but, but, you know, when are we going to like do this stuff? You know, and I said, well, oh, no. I've got to figure Soon. it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and, you know they, they, they knew the play, but it was, you know, in terms of just spoken theater, it was getting better and better, but it just wasn't, you know, I was trying stuff out and it wasn't working. How do you, how do, you do a coach going through Dublin on a stage? That, that's believable. 
And so at one point in desperation, I called my friend who's a very experienced director. I said, you know, who happened to live in Italy. I said, could you come up here for a week and help me? Because I don't know what else to do, you know. And fortunately he did. Um, oh, good. And uh, Outsource. And, yeah. <laughs> well, I just said, you know, how do we get from here to there? He said, well, that, that's simple, you know, and, and show me that. Yeah, that, is, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, one step led to another. And I began to see how you could actually, ta- you know, turn this into a play. Uh, and I realized at that point that when something is not a play and you turn it into a play, you should probably have more experience than I did at that point to do it or, or be more talented that in any case, uh, that for me was the moment where I realized, you know, I needed help. And did, since that first foray into, I suppose, using, uh, uh, um, you know, a prose or a narrative, did, did, have you done it since many times? Oh, yeah. No, I, I have done it since. I mean, I haven't done it as a full length play. I mean, mm. I've done scenes. I, I like to work like that a lot. Uh, yeah, I've done it with short stories um, like that. And um, but the short the short stories that I've chosen are short stories that, that are easier to do, to direct. Like that. that was a challenging choice. The, to be the, fair, the, the, <laughs> I, I love the story so much. I didn't quite think about how I was going to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenging choice. But yeah. it's an interesting area, definitely. I, I I personally am interested in a lot of kind of devising and that kind of thing, and. I'm also interested in teachers as writers, drama teachers as writers and how we create our work. Uh, do you do you do a, a lot of adaptation yourself and, and <clears throat> like writing or would that be an interest? No, what, I, what I like to do is when we do these chamber theater uh, productions or just working on chamber theater where I'm having the students friends take a, you know, another story from Dubliners, not, not the dead, which of course is very long, but another short story or another you know, stress over somebody else. Um, I will have them divide up the text, you know, where is the narrator's voice and where is it the character speaking? And, and you know, chamber theater, the sort of the, the uh, traditions of chamber theater allow you to say your name. So it's not that everything has to be trained, tran- transformed into dialogue the way it would be in a film. Uh, so, you know, the, the first line of, uh, of, the, of the dead is, you know, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally, literally run off her feet. Lily says that line. You know, she, she refers to herself in the third person. And, mm. and you have to listen, where is it the, the, the narrator speaking? And where is it clearly the narrator's voice? The character wouldn't speak like that. And where is it the character's voice speaking? That's where the character thinks. That's where the character would speak to themselves. And so I let the students divide up the texts. You know, so I give them a feedback if I think something's mm. working or not working. So it ends up being a very careful exercise in listening. You know, mm. when do we hear, you know, somebody expressing something in a way that they wouldn't express it? And when do we hear that's the way they think, that's the way they talk. And so, it really focuses on the language, doesn't it? I've never used right. chamber theater. I'm, I'm just made a little note to myself there to go and, and look into this a bit more because well, it sounds very useful. <laughs> in the, in this, this issue of scenario that comes out in July, I, I write a bit about that. You know. Oh, um, yes. Oh, that's coming out in July. Um, I, tell me a little bit more about that while we're on it. Yeah, no, there's a whole issue of uh, scenario going to be devoted to Waldorf foreign language teaching. Uh, which wow. we, we were very excited when we were asked to do that. And so mm. you get the whole range of articles, you know, some of them very practical, you know, how to, you know, different ways of teaching first grade, you know, different ways of teaching different grades. And there's a number of articles also on Waldorf teacher education. And in that context, and when I talk about Waldorf foreign language teacher education, I talk about teaching our you know, future teachers how to use chamber theater. And so I give some, mm. an example of, of, of how chamber theater 
uh, is organized, you know, what are the challenges involved? And as you absolutely say, it, it, it's, it's really about listening very closely to the language and making decisions and trying them out. You know, does this work when the narrator speaks this line? Does it work better when the character speaks this line? Or do they share the line? Um, and I think that that's a very in, intense and very important way of learning to read, to listen like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm fascinated now by that. I, I'll have to check out scenario when it comes out. Um, and also, if you're ever back, because I know you sometimes, you, you've been to Ireland giving workshops before, right? Yeah, um, well, before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was that was was that physically or was that online? I'm trying. No, that, that was a long time. It was before one even thought about online conferences. Oh, in 2014. Even yeah. Even better. <laughs> um, yeah. So hopefully you'll be back again, and we'll get to we'll get to do another another great course. That'd be brilliant. So uh, I'm interested in hearing this because um, this is I, I I think you have been a little bit. Uh, different to some other people that I have interviewed. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about this. So thought tracking, um, so the future of drama um, and what should be next. Or I suppose in your context as well, you know, you can talk about what you're doing as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, of course, in, in standard world of context, I'm in a very different context than most people <clears throat> where that too. I mean, you know, I don't have to defend the, the, the possibilities of drama and I don't have to explain why we're doing it. Um, <clears throat> I don't have to justify this to anybody, you know, since it's, it's a school. It's <laughs> Yeah, no, really. I mean, it's, it's very privileged. You know? I'm very aware of that. I mean, in general, I think, um, you know, especially after the experiences now with all this online teaching that we're forced to do, um, there's a real danger that that uh, foreign language teaching and teaching in general becomes more and more dig digitalized. That you know uh, that the industries that are propagating online teaching, propagating you know artificial intelligence in language learning, for instance, which is, plays a huge role. I mean, huge Geolingo and, and all of those. And all these things, you know, and and you know they're, they're working on all these different you know instant translator you know these devices you talk into it in your language it comes out in the other language uh, and i was teaching in taiwan recently and um the uh, they were saying their their kids are saying well why should we learn english it's so hard and they can just talk into this little device and it comes out chinese you know i mean and uh, oh wow and you know this this is you know this is only going to develop further you know and the, the, as you know of course the, these uh, text translation machines depot They've gotten really good. You know, it used to be pretty mm -hmm. funny what they came up with. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's actually, accurate now, is it? It's, I mean, it's not 100%, but it's getting there. I mean, it, it's, it's really quite impressive. And so all that, you know, is going to raise pressures on us to, to sort of ignore, you know, these kinds of things that we're talking about. Ignore the, the emotional level, ignore the physical level, ignore all the things that drama offers. And so I think in, in teaching in general, um, there's, there's a real danger that, that we forget these, you know, what drama can mean in someone's life, you know, what the experience mm -hmm. of drama, either acting it or, or seeing it, um, working on it, uh, because digitalization will change the way people teach and learn. And I think it's important that we don't forget what gets lost at those points. Huge, hugely. So I really agree with that. Um, I think I think us us in this industry, I think we're very much aware of the importance of face to face communication, you know, um, and I think, yeah, it, the definitely the convenience of it all seems to be taking over. Um, 
And of course, you know, it, it was not saying, you know, of course we were forced to do it, uh, pandemic and, and everybody did the best they could. And, and that was what was on. But um, I think there's a real danger that in the end people think, well, we can't go back to what used to be. This, this is the new development. This is what the modernization, modernization of education means is digitalization. I think that that's really a misunderstanding of, of what education should be. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of the digitalization of things, I think definitely it's if it can enhance. That's something I learned over the last couple of years, trying not to use technology to be fancy and to try and go, oh, wow, look at this cool thing mm -hmm. and actually just use it to enhance. And if it's if it's not enhancing or if there's something better that can be used in, in terms of practice, then and use that. Um, that's kind of a good takeaway. In, in terms of geography, of course, as, as we're experiencing now, you being in Canada, meeting in Poland, I mean, of course, very convenient. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and no, it's been great for that, for sure. But that's, that's <laughs> the thing. And, and, you know, I certainly see the advantages too. And, and I've taken part in online meetings and conferences that were only possible online because people were in South Africa and in the United States. And so um, I'm certainly, you know, it's clear to me that, that this is part of our future. I just think that, mm. especially in terms of, of children and teenagers, but also university students, uh, there's no substitute for being together in person. And, you know, you look mm. at the, these, these huge amounts of studies that have been done in the meantime about, uh, you know, what, what happened to young people during the pandemic and, and, and the state they're still in, uh, mm. some of them that uh, it, it's clear that, that not being together in the same space um, affects young people in, in ways that they go very deeply. Yeah. And, and, and I just, you know, so my, my concern with, you know, addressing your question with the future of drama, my, my wish is that it, it doesn't get lost, but we realize that actually how important it is because it really is a chance to involve the whole person directly, almost as a polarity to, you know, teaching online. Yeah. I think that's that's a huge part of of Waldorf um, teaching as well, isn't it? That the whole person. Um, I know similar to Fred, we look at that the whole looking at the whole child. Um, uh, thanks, that was a really refreshing answer. I think I'm just going to hone in on what you said there about not having to prove that you're using the arts, not having to prove their worth. <laughs> that's a very interesting. And lovely thing. <laughs> yes. no, I, it really is. And that's something that I think all well, the teachers appreciate that uh, it, what's totally clear to us, and when I'm in other academic contexts, is not clear you know, to other no. people. And uh, that often requires explanation. I'm involved in an organization over here in Canada called the Arts Ed Network of Ontario. So we, um, I'm on the board with them and we, we talk about. Uh, kind of connecting arts uh, practitioners and we look at kind of the arts, the role of the arts and organizations and things like that. And we were, I was speaking yesterday to a girl that I had, we were doing a knowledge exchange program. So we've kind of teamed together kind of in a mentorship style thing. And we were talking about what, what we've been doing since we last spoke a couple of months ago. And she was saying her emphasis has been on advocating for the arts and that's, she feels like she's doing that. And I was saying like, it, it's, it's so funny that that's, the focus that, that she has had is, is advocating for the arts. We can't actually do it. We have to advocate for them first. But sometimes the best advocation for the arts is doing and seeing and people don't believe it till they do and they see. Um, so I think that can be sometimes the most powerful thing. That, that, I agree completely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, sometimes 
you even have people sort of writing about the importance of the arts and you, or you hear them talking about it and you have the question in the back of your head, have they actually done this? You know, mm. you know <laughs> I've seen people, you know, reading, you know, just uh, conference, just reading a paper on the importance of drama and, and the arts and, and teaching. And I think, but why are they reading this, you know, this text? If they, why aren't they just talking to us, you know? And I realize, of course, you know, they're academic, uh, um, conventions, that's what they're following. But uh, I, I think that there truly is no substitute for your own experience. And that then ends up often shaping the way you teach and the way you talk, at, even in an academic conference. And in terms of Waldorf, so there's not that, they're not that common, Waldorf schools. I know, I know obviously in Germany, there's more and yeah. kind of that side of the world. But in Ireland, I don't think there are very many. I know in Toronto here, there's definitely one um, downtown that's very mm. well known, well regarded. Um, and I'd love to, to know why there aren't more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, each country has its own story. You know, in Germany, you know, where it was founded, there are a lot of, there's like 250 schools, a lot of schools here. Um, and uh, in other country, you know, Holland also has a lot of Waldorf schools. Um, but a country like France, for instance, very, very few. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Ireland also, there aren't many. It's true. Mm-hmm. England, England, there are some, but they, you know, they, I mean, of course, it also depends on, on the funding situation. Uh, in Germany, the schools are funded to eighty percent, roughly, by the government, so they're not expensive. The, mm. the, the Waldorf schools in England, for instance, and, and I think in Ireland, but I'm not entirely sure, uh, are not state funded. So yeah, same with Toronto, they're fee paying and they're, they're basically run by the parents here. Yeah. Well, I mean, probably not run by parents, but they're well, financed by parents. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of like the Educate Together school system that we have in Ireland as well. It's kind of um, very much kind of community and parent support. Um, so it's an interesting one and, and one I think we should look into because it's, it sounds wonderful. Um, so I'm going to come to your quick fire round now, uh, which I think you'll do well on. I, I, um, some people are like, I can't say only a short answer, but I think you'll be good. Um, so what is your why? Why do you do it and why should anyone do it and sum it up in three sentences? I think what's most satisfying is to do something for someone else. And so the why of teaching, you know, and the gift of teaching is the chance to do things for young people. And, you know, what could be more satisfying and exciting than giving young people something that that becomes meaningful for their lives? Yeah. That's the why. That's lovely. That's lovely. And that's, what our wise should be really because it is all about about them isn't it um that is really lovely um so this is a funny one i'm not sure yeah what so one drama strategy or technique that you always go to i feel like uh you've mentioned um chamber theater already so maybe that might be what you're going to say but <laughs> you tell I'll, me i'll say something different <laughs> um no i mean the one uh, I believe very strongly in the performance of poetry. I think poetry spoken aloud has a, has a, a richness, has a, a depth that it, it doesn't necessarily have on the page. And of course, you know, it's the most, you know, the most beautiful and most uh, yeah, profound language of all is the language of poetry. And so when it's performed, 
it, it, you know, audiences can't believe sometimes what they're experiencing. And uh, so that's, you know, whenever I have a chance to, to work with small groups of people, you know, usually groups of three, to perform, you know, in a Mary Oliver poem, an E. Cummings poem, a Billy Collins poem, like contemporary poetry, 20th century poetry. Um, it's always exciting. Tell me, who's your favorite poet? Oh, um, <laughs> that's a hard one. I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, my favorite poet, I used to say, I think she died recently, that's the problem, but Mary Oliver is certainly oh, yeah. one of my you know, favorite, yeah. used to be living poets and now no longer. And, uh, Oh, yeah. My favorite poet is Yeats, W.B. Yeats. I'm from Sligo, where Yeats is um, oh, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, Yeats, I, mean, I can understand that truth. I mean, if I had, had a, a second choice, it, it might be E. Cummings. Um, uh, but uh, that's, yeah, yeah, I can agree with Yeats too. Which is... Can I ask you, what would be your favorite kind of poem to use with young people? Is there, do you have a go-to? A poem that's beautiful to do with, with young people who are in high school age is the Billy Collins poem, I'm Turning 10. So it's, it's a poem about what, it, what it's like when a, a, a child then becomes 10, where at some point things change dramatically for them at that age. And that puts it into such a, a beautiful context. It's just a beautiful poem. And when high school pupils perform that poem, you know, it's so close to their experience. You know, they're 16, 17, and then suddenly they, they remember what it was like to turn 10. And it becomes very, very powerful for them just, just to, to even read the poem, never mind performing. Well, that's so true. Yeah, it is a very pivotal age, actually, turning 10. I haven't read that poem. I've just written it down. I'm going to go read it now after this. <laughs> and our, our, our last quick fire question. One piece of advice for other drama practitioners. I would, I would look for theater clowning courses um, because th th that is the art of, of being authentic and improvising. And that, that's sort of fantastic combination. You know? mm -hmm. So if there, I know there are theater courses, theater clowning courses offered in lots of different places and, um, and it's different than circus clowning. And it's really something I think that for teachers in particular is an extremely valuable experience. It's very good advice. Um, I mentioned to you already, I've done a, a theatre clowning course um, and it's been brilliant. And it's a long, 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 long time ago. Um, <laughs> however, I do think it's kind of, I've brought it into my practice in many ways. Um, so yeah, that's a really good piece of advice. Peter, it has been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. It's been really refreshing um, to kind of get your perspective and to see the work that you're doing. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, yeah it's, been, it's been great talking to you. I look forward to seeing you sometime in person. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Hot Seating, the drama education podcast brought to you by the Association of Drama in Education in Ireland. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please tell a friend or two, like and subscribe to hear further conversations. Mm -hmm.